Take your Bibles now and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us today, just a quick word about our primary methodology here concerning the Word of God. We try to preach expositorily. We try to preach through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible. Sometimes we'll we'll bring all the various verses about a topic together and preach that way, but our goal is always to preach what the Bible says. You're not interested in my opinion. Neither am I, frankly. So uh, try, not to, try not to do that. We try to just make this what the Bible says. And so we've been in Philippians for some time now. We're almost done. I think we might have three more today. And then the next week we have a missionary who's going to be here. So we won't be in Philippians next week. But I believe we'll have just a couple more after that, the following two Sundays, and then we'll be done. So be praying about where we go next because uh, I'm not sure where we're going to go next yet. But uh, we'll be finishing up Philippians there shortly. Philippians chapter 4, let's begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read the first seven verses. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, We'll guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious passage. Thank you for what we've seen in Philippians so far. What a wonderful book. I pray that it's been helpful to others as it has been to me. But I pray now that you would just help us to concentrate on this particular passage, on these seven verses. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. Forgive me for anything that would hinder my usefulness. Help me, Lord, to preach what I should and nothing more. And help me to preach what I should as boldly as you would have me to. I pray today that you would just help us all to have ears to hear and a heart that is open to responding to the, to the Word of God. And so teach us, speak to us, change us, make us more Christ-like as a result of what takes place here now. And we'll just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul begins this section by revisiting one of his initial thoughts which is to stand fast in the Lord. He had mentioned that in the very beginning, clear back in chapter 1 of verse number 27. And now here in his final comments, he says it again, stand fast in the Lord. We mentioned this last week. We used that verse as the conclusion of chapter 3, and we said it actually is a transitional verse between chapter 3 and chapter 4. It closes out what we had seen in chapter 3, and as a conclusion there, it reminds us that we can stand fast in the Lord. When we go back and we look at all that chapter 3 says we have in Christ, we have what we need in order to stand fast in the Lord. Uh, but now, as the beginning thought in chapter 4, when we think of it that way, it's an imperative. It's a command. And that's, of course, the way it's worded. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. It's an imperative. It's a command. Stand fast. Paul used some interesting metaphors in his various writings. Uh, 
metaphors which describe the Christian life. Back in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we saw that he used the metaphor of a race. The Christian life was like running, running a race. And in that particular metaphor, we saw that we're to never stop running. We're to keep on reaching for the goal, keep running, no matter what. Never feel like we had arrived, until we finally do. One day we will. But uh, that was one metaphor. Here now he is describing the Christian life as standing. Standing fast in the Lord. Whatever comes, stand. Whoever and whatever tries to push you around, stand. When you feel most like sitting down, stand. When the gusts and storms of this life threaten to blow you away, stand. I'm reminded of the very famous picture, and I'm sure most of you have seen it, if not all of you, of the young man standing in front of an entire column of tanks. You remember that? It was Tiananmen Square in China, June 5, 1989. Those tanks had just been used to forcibly, militarily quell a, uh, a, a protest. And as they were departing Tiananmen Square, one young man stood there, eyeball to cannon, in front of those tanks. And it's a picture that captured the attention of the world. What a picture. Stand. The Israelites were penned in with the Red Sea on one side and the advancing Egyptian army on the other. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand. Jehoshaphat was the king in Judah. And he was told by a prophet, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. You stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. So much of the Christian life is that, just standing, standing fast, no matter what comes. Well, Paul develops that thought as he goes throughout chapter 4 here, and I think the point could be made that everything that he describes here now modifies that. Everything that he describes going forward is, is, is pretty much describing some aspect of what it means to stand fast in the Lord. And so let me just uh, let me just go down through these next six verses and, and notice some things that he does here. First of all, notice verses 2 and 3. Paul starts off here by naming names. Naming names. He calls out a couple of women here. Euodia and Syntyche. He calls them out by name. These two women were apparently the cause of some dissension in the congregation. And perhaps they were the reason that he has mentioned unity and disunity and dissension so much in this letter. We have said that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy, but we've also said there's a secondary theme. Some even would go so far as to say it really is probably the theme. Single-mindedness, unity in the church. And uh, perhaps these two, Euodia and Syntyche, were the impetus of all of that, bickering women. And his singling them out by name is a good reminder to us of the seriousness of this sort of thing. You know, it's not trivial to divide God's people. It's not trivial to be the focal point of dissension in the church. It's, it's actually very serious. It was serious enough for Paul to not only address it generally, as he had done so far in this letter, but now he comes to the end. And he has to get truly specific. He has to put his finger right on the spot. Euodia and Syntyche, you need to be of the same mind in the Lord. And as I thought about this this week, as I was studying this and thinking about these two women, 
a question came to my mind, and I have to pause and reflect on it for a moment. I'll ask it first of myself, and then I'm going to ask it of you. I ask myself, what is it that I want to be remembered for? And now let me ask it of you. What is it that you want to be remembered for? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We know nothing about these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, except we know that they were believers. It says their names were written in the, in the, in the book of life. We know that they were believers. We knew that they helped Paul in some way. We know that they were affiliated with the uh, first church of Philippi. We know that. But the only other thing we know about them is that for 2,000 years they have been remembered for one thing and one thing only, and that is bickering and not getting along. How sad to live a life for Christ. And the only thing people remember about you is that you couldn't get along, is that it was bickering. Oh, we need to pray as the psalmist prayed, Oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. You ever pray that prayer? We ought to pray it. Keep my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Psalm chapter 25 and verse number 20. Let my legacy bring glory. Let my legacy bring honor, not shame or embarrassment. Well, that was probably neither here nor there, but it's something that came to my mind as I thought about this. How sad it would be. You see, when a believer is doing something that causes discord or dissension in the local church, they need to be dealt with. And sometimes that means dealing with them publicly, as Paul did here. No pastor likes that. I can imagine Paul struggling. I don't don't know if he was writing this letter or if he had an amenuensis, as he often did when he wrote I would imagine probably someone else actually was, was holding the pen here and he was dictating to them. But I can imagine him struggling. If he was writing, I can imagine him pausing right there before he got to that name. Do I really want to write this name? Do I really want to make this public? It's a difficult thing. And I can imagine if Epaphroditus was the one holding the pen and, and he was just dictating to him, I can imagine him pausing before he said those names. I can tell you as a pastor, I, I, I hate this. I am loathe to confront somebody when they are in sin or in some difficulty. And it's a weakness in a pastor. It is. I thank God I have a group of godly elders who are meaner than me, a group of godly elders who uh, kind of fill in for my weaknesses. One of the greatest examples of this concept is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians when he described a time that he took Peter to task. Peter, one of the Uh, certainly most prominent of all the apostles. He said this, When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, the subject of Paul's concern about what what, what Peter was doing there is not germane to our study, but his behavior in calling him out is. Peter was in error. Paul had to deal with it. Peter's error was public, and so it had to be dealt with publicly. And that's what Paul was doing here. Name and names. Euodia. And Syntyche, he points them out. He asks that they straighten up, that they settle their differences, whatever they were. 
and that they strive for unity rather than the dissension they were engaged in. Now, I believe, and so there's, there's some dispute about this, but I believe there's actually a third name here. Your Bible says in verse number 3, I urge you also, true companion, or true yoke fellow, if you're holding a King James Bible, true companion. Bible scholars are divided as to who that person was that Paul was addressing there. He said, I urge you also, true companion, help those women, these women who labored with me in the gospel. There's all kinds of explanations. Some people think it was another person in the church. Some people think it was Epaphroditus. That doesn't make any sense at all to me. But some people think it was Epaphroditus. Some have suggested Timothy. I don't know where that comes from. Some suggest Lydia, the first convert who was in the church at Philippi. None of those make sense to me. And then there's a fourth suggestion, which is that true companion is actually a proper name. It's, it's an interesting name. You might want to consider this, any of you who are, are planning a family. It's, it's the name Syzygus. Syzygus. It is S Y Z Y G U S. Syzygus. But, you know, if you think about it, here, here we have, I implore Euodia, I implore Syntyche names, I urge you also, true companion, no name, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also. He's, he's in the list of names here. It just makes sense to me, personally, that that is what that really should be. He's talking to a person here. I beseech you also, Syzygus, help these women who are going through this particular thing. These women had once been useful. They had been profitable. They had labored alongside Paul and Clement and others. They had once been known for their service alongside of Paul. Now they were known for their bickering and their contention. And he says, Sisychus, help them. Help them. You know when a brother or a sister is struggling in their faith, we need to help them. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians chapter 6. You know somebody who's struggling in their faith? Somebody who's struggling in this church? Help them. That does not mean that we condone sin. Not at all. It does not mean that we stroke their struggle or stroke their sinfulness. It means just the opposite. It means we lovingly confront. It means we go to them, as uh, Sean is so uh, prone to say, and point out their pain point, get them past that pain point, encourage them to do right, to confess, to repent, to get back in line. That's what he was encouraging Syzygus, or whoever this was, to do with these women. So Paul named names. And then having dealt with that specific issue, He returned to his theme. Look at verse number 4, which is, by the way, the very key verse of this entire book. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. I read one place where somebody said Paul was a man who was intoxicated by joy. And I think that may be true. The book of Philippians certainly is a letter brimming and overflowing with joy. We've said it over and over. We've seen it in just about every sermon that we've preached out of here. The, 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 whole, the whole point of the book is rejoicing in joy. We are to rejoice, he says. We are to rejoice in the Lord. We are to rejoice always. And he says it bears repeating. Let me say it again. Rejoice always. Don't you feel sorry for those who are outside of Christ, who live in this sin-sick, messed-up, Dying, broken world. They have no reason for joy. 
They have no source of joy. They have no prospects of joy. But those of us who know Christ have no end of reasons to rejoice, have no end of joy in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Now, we mentioned the distinction before, but because this is the key verse, I want to make sure we're really clear on this. Bears repeating. He did not say, be happy. Did you notice that? You all heard that little, what's, what's that little song? Don't worry, be happy. That's not biblical. That's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about happiness. Happiness depends on circumstances. There are many circumstances we encounter where we are not happy. Rejoicing, joy, doesn't depend on our circumstances. It depends on something outside of our circumstances. And notice what he said it is here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice because of what we have in Jesus Christ. And we can always do that. And we should always do that, no matter our circumstances. King David's life was far from happy sometimes. You ever read the stories of King David? Good night. He spent many years fleeing King Saul, who wanted to murder him and tried to on multiple occasions. His own son, Absalom, initiated a coup and tried to take the kingdom away from him. Tried to kill him, his own father. There was enough trouble in David's life to wipe the smile off of anybody's face. And yet, if you read his Psalms, what do you see? So often you see joy. So often you see joy. I think I might have told you about a a dear lady named Irma. Did I mention Irma to you guys? I think I have. Irma was one of my first hospital visits as a young pastor in New Jersey. I think she was my very first hospital visit. I was the associate pastor there, actually. And I was called to her bedside. Irma was a very elderly lady. And uh, she uh, had very little in the way of worldly wealth, that kind of thing. And she was suffering one of the more unfortunate side effects, complications of diabetes. I was going to visit her just after she had lost her leg to amputation. And I remember approaching her room, and I remember stealing myself because I thought, well, this is going to be bad. This is going to be depressing. She's going to be sad. It's going to be difficult. But I pushed the door open, and there she laid in the middle of the bed, and this huge smile broke out on her face. And uh, (laughs) she pointed to this little quivering mound in the sheet there, which was all that remained of her leg underneath of there. And she said, hey, preacher, you want to meet Lefty? And I must have had the most ridiculous look on my face. I'm sure I was, what? I'm sure I was stunned. Because she just laughed and laughed and laughed. Do you have that? Do you have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart? It's only possible in the Lord. Only. I love the sentiment that I've seen on several church signs. You've seen it too. No Jesus, no joy. No Jesus, no joy. No Jesus. N-O, Jesus. N-O, joy. K-N-O-W, Jesus. K-N-O-W, joy. Irma's joy was plastered all over her face. You couldn't help but see it. But in reality, our joy is an internal thing, right? It's something that the world doesn't normally see unless it flows out like that. It's an internal thing. Paul wanted it to be seen, though. He wanted what we had in Christ to be seen. And so in verse number 5, he said, Let your gentleness be known to all men. Let your gentleness be known to all men. That word, Gentleness describes a forbearing, non-retaliatory spirit. It includes the idea of yielding. It's basically what he had described back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each 
esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Our joy is internal. It's not always visible. But how we treat others is. How we behave toward others is visible. And Paul's saying here that this gentle, forbearing, non-retaliatory, yielding others' first spirit is to be visible to all men. And why? Well, he says it there, because the Lord is at hand, because Jesus is coming again. He had mentioned that. We talked about that last week in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. He hammers it home again here now. The Lord is at hand, imminent. When we're tempted to be something other than joyful in our walk, and when we're tempted to be something other than gentle with others, something other than forbearing, when we're tempted to retaliate against others for some perceived treatment of us, we need to ask ourselves this question. If Jesus were to come back today, and he might, is that what we want him to see us doing? Is that what we want the very last thing to be? Oh, Christians, the Lord is at hand. We ought to underline that in our Bible. The Lord is at hand. May we be found rejoicing in him. May we be found living rightly toward others, all others, Paul says. And then that brings us to the last two verses that I wanted to look at today. And I think we could sum up these last two verses, which are two of the best verses in all the Bible, maybe. These two verses we could sum up with two words, nothing and everything. Nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about things. Christians should care deeply about things. Christians should care about things like justice and righteousness, the issues in our government which are so ridiculously out of control, the treatment received by those around us. We should care about these things. But what Paul's saying here is we should not worry. We should not worry. That's what the word anxious means. Don't worry. Jesus taught the same thing, didn't he? He taught it in Matthew chapter 3, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Why should we worry? I mean, if, if we have a God who is in control, as Jesus described there, if we have an all-powerful and ever-loving God who's meeting our every need, a Savior who loves us more than we can imagine, why would we worry? Be anxious for nothing. And pray about everything. Anxious for nothing, pray about everything. 
Notice the contrast between verses 5 and 6. We are to let our gentleness and forbearing selfish spirit be known to all men. We're to let our requests be known to God. We're to live our life in a way according to the word of God. Live as a Christian. Strive for Christ's likeness in everything and in how we treat others. No matter what they might do or say to you. And then we're supposed to leave the rest to God. Take it to him in prayer. One man summed up verse 6 as worry about nothing. Pray about everything. I know you might want to write that in the margin of your Bible. It's a good summation. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Do you struggle with worry? And you do. You need to get hold of those two words. Nothing and everything. Worry about nothing. In its place, pray about everything. Whatever you're worrying about. Take it from the worry side of the equation. Move it to the prayer side of the equation and watch the worry fade away. Now, this passage is about prayer, and so it makes me think of some things. Maybe a few thoughts that we need to suggest just about prayer in general while we're here. First of all, if we're going to think about prayer, we need to realize a very important thing. And that is that prayer is something only a Christian has the privilege of doing. One commentator that I quote often, he pointed out in his, in his uh, writings on this passage, he said, there are two very simple ingredients for prayer to be true prayer. It is, first of all, simply talking to God, nothing more, nothing less. We tend to want to make it into something else. That's all it is. Prayer is talking to God. But he says, secondly, it is a privilege only the Christian enjoys. Prayer is something that only those who are in the Lord may practice. And Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He said in John chapter 14 and verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we often use that verse to talk about the fact there's only one way to salvation. And we use it that way, and that's the right way to use it. It's true. It's a true statement. There's only one way to God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. There are not many ways to heaven. I don't care where you've heard that or what you've seen on YouTube. It's not true. Jesus is the only way. But that same exclusivity is also true of prayer. The only way to the throne room of God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, there's not a whole lot of sense in your praying. The only prayer that God promises to answer when prayed by an unsaved person is the prayer that repents of sin and calls upon Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Have you prayed that prayer? He'll hear that one. He promises to hear that one. And truthfully, here's something to think about. God doesn't always hear the prayers of Christians either. The Bible plainly teaches that God does not hear the prayers of Christians who harbor some sin, cling to some sin in their life, refuse to repent of it. David knew that. He said in Psalm chapter 66, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Regard iniquity, that means cherish it. That means the picture is like you set it on the mantelpiece where you can look at it and cherish it and love it and not deal with it. If I regard that, God will not hear. Isaiah knew this. He warned of it. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. There are probably some in this room this morning whose prayers never reach heaven because they've never trusted Christ. Why don't you fix that today? Why don't you trust Jesus today? Why don't you get saved today? Why don't you call upon the name of the Lord? Why don't you be born again today? 
and, 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 and enjoy that wonderful open line to heaven. There may also be some today who have trusted Christ, and your prayers still don't reach heaven because you're harboring some sin. You can fix that today, too. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Confess it and repent of it. Well, we're to pray, and we're to pray with thanksgiving. He described here the overriding attitude that we should have in prayer. He had written something similar to the Thessalonian believers when he said, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And no doubt, as, as, the, as the Philippians were reading these words, when he was talking about praying, let your requests be known to God, with thanksgiving, I'm sure that the Philippian people were remembering early on when they first met Paul, uh, clear back uh, in Acts chapter 16, when he had been thrown into prison. You remember that? That's pretty much how this whole thing got started in Philippi. And it says that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. He not only told about this, he, uh, he demonstrated it. We are to pray at all times and about all things. We are to pray with a heart of thanksgiving, overriding everything that we pray about. Hezekiah received a threatening letter from Sennacherib. And the Bible says Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. We're supposed to pray about everything. The apostles were threatened and told by the ruling authorities that they could not preach the gospel anymore. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, we read that they prayed, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. The Apostle Paul suffered some sort of of, of physical infirmity. We don't know what it was. He said, I was sought the Lord three times. He prayed about that. Nehemiah wanted to do something big for God. And he needed the permission of his king before he could do it. And so the king said to him, what do you request? And so what did Nehemiah do? He said, I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I spoke with the king. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Try to imagine, if you could, a life lived in verse number 6. What would it look like? Well, I believe, first of all, it would include verse 4. I think it would be a life overflowing with joy. I think it would be a life that joy was a part of. I think it would include verse number 5. I think others would see it. But Paul says very specifically here that there would be something that would result from such a life, a life that lived with worrying about nothing and praying about everything. And he mentions it in verse number 7. He says there that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Now again, we've talked about this before, but we we need to make sure it's clear. He's not talking about peace with God here. That phrase is also used in the Bible. He used that to describe the reality that when we trust Christ, when we are born again, the enmity that previously existed between our lost soul and our righteous God is erased. And now we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 talks about that. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has been justified by faith, everyone who is saved, born again, a believer, has peace with God. But Paul here is speaking of the peace of that's different. It is, as he describes here, indescribable. It surpasses all understanding. And he said here that that peace will guard your hearts and minds. I wish we had time to think about that a little bit more. 
He will guard your hearts and minds. That's a military term. It pictures a garrison, a posted guard all around your hearts and minds, keeping you in peace. Such peace is hard to describe unless you've experienced it. And I think that's why Paul said it surpassed us all understanding. But I guarantee you there's many in this room that can say they've experienced it. I know our dear brother, sister, brother and sister Bruce and Sandy just recently put their beloved son in the ground. Ask Sister Sandy about it. And she likes to talk about the fact that she has the peace of God about that. I think I experienced a little bit of it when my son Joshua was nearly dying from cancer or when I uh, experienced my, my first wife dying in my arms. I can't explain what it was like other than to say that it was an overwhelming realization that everything was okay. The peace of God. That peace was there. I knew it. I felt it. It washed over me like balm. Peace. The peace of God. Incomprehensible. Unexplainable. Surpassing all understanding. It was there. The songwriter said, what a treasure I have in this wonderful peace. Buried deep in the heart of my soul. So secure that no power can mine it away. While the years of eternity roll. The peace of God. That peace can be yours. If you get hold of these two little words, nothing and everything, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus.